Good evening, everybody. Uh, this is our fourth week here in apologetics. Um, before we get started today, I want to open up with a word of prayer real quick. So, dear Heavenly Father, we come to you today. Uh, Lord, we thank you for our time together and our ability to uh, survey your word and your truth together, Lord. Please just help this class tonight be edifying to everyone. I pray that everyone can learn something and just help us to better understand you and your word and how you speak to us through your word, Lord. And we just thank you that you are a personal God who revealed himself to us in your word and in your son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen. So tonight we're going to address the, the main thing that we're going to talk about is, well, how did we get the Bible? Uh, we, I'm going to talk a little bit about the Old Testament and what's called the apocryphal texts. If anybody is familiar with Catholicism, they'll be familiar with this. Now, this is something that always comes up because there's some weird teachings that come out of the Apocrypha or the Deuter Deuterocanonical text. So we're going to talk about that, how we understand how we got the Old Testament briefly, because there's that's really a big topic, so we're going to just kind of briefly touch on it. And then we're going to touch on the New Testament specifically. So... How do, we, how do we as Christians know which books belong in the Bible? Now, one thing I can say is, is that us as Christians, when we read the scriptures, the Holy Spirit can testify to our hearts and we can recognize the glory and beauty of Jesus in the biblical texts. And when we read it, we can see and we can hear our Lord, right? But this, however, is not really a helpful defense to give to an unbeliever since an unbeliever is generally unwilling or unable to recognize this same glory and beauty. Uh, you'll, there's, a, there's a term I want to um, define up front because it's often used in this discussion and it's the word is canon. Okay, it's C-A-N-O-N, -N, like the camera, right? And you'll see, when you think about it, you'll see why they, they use that term, not C-A-N-N-O-N, -N -N, like an artillery piece. Okay, so the word canon originated with the Greek word kanon, which just meant read, like a hollow read. And eventually this came to imply an authoritative standard. The Greeks used these reeds or these canon shaped plant, these canon shaped plants to cut the different lengths as a means of measuring like a yardstick. Um, that's what it was originally used for. And then the term kind of came to mean an infallible standard for faith and life of God's people. Though this class, as I said, will primarily try to focus on the New Testament, I did want to briefly address the Old Testament and what is called the apocryphal or deut deuterocanonical text. That's a mouthful. So how do we know what books belong in the Old Testament? Well, the first thing we need to understand about the Bible and the Old Testament in particular is that the Bible is what we call progressive revelation. See, God did not just drop the Bible all at once in our laps. Rather, God spoke through different people at different times during different periods of revelation history. Also, this, the idea of revelation or revelation of God in his word is important. And some people who don't embrace the idea of that God can speak through text or through words like he does, they take issue with this, but they really shouldn't because 
this is a common thing that we think about every day, right? So we understand God as an immaterial mind or spirit. And just like with us in our minds, the only way to know what is in our minds is to know and to know our thoughts and our feelings is for us to reveal what is in our minds. So, you know, you might be able to sit there and scan my brain and figure out like, well, maybe he's a certain part of his brain is doing something and he's upset, but you wouldn't know what my thoughts were or what I'm thinking unless I revealed them to you through speech or written word, okay? So, so too, this is the what it is with God. If God is an immaterial mind or spirit, the only way that we can know his thoughts is for him to reveal himself to us through the written text of the Bible, but also through his son, Jesus Christ as well. But today we're just talking about the biblical text. So in the, as I said, the progressive revelation of the Old Testament, proclamations and writings were retrospectively looked at or recognized as divinely inspired as their claims were revealed to be true. Okay, so we can see this pattern in Deuteronomy 18, 18 to 22. And I'll read that real quick. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my word in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And this is God, this is God speaking to Moses. And whoever will not listen to my words that, I, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, the same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that, that is a word that the Lord had not spoken. If the prophet speaks presumptuously, we need not be afraid of him. So that's what Deuteronomy says. And that's kind of our model of understanding. So if someone, speak, if someone speaks a word of prophecy and it comes true, they are, and they proclaim the one true God of Israel, Yahweh, it is deemed true. If the word does not come true or it leads people away from God, it is false. So you had the prophets, they would speak words of prophecy and the way that we, they would know that, they were, that these were true was if the, the prophetic utterances came true and they drew people closer to God. If it was the opposite of that, they, be, they weren't true or they drew people away from God, then they were, they were deemed to be false. So that's kind of a very, like I said, Old Testament studies and stuff, it goes deeper into that, but that's a general understanding and framework of how we have the Old Testament. Now, anyone familiar with Catholicism or any like the Greek Orthodox Church and that kind of stuff will be familiar with the apocryphal texts in the, what, the Old Testament or the Catholic version of the Old Testament, I should say, because there is a Catholic version of the Bible that has addition, these additional apocryphal texts in them. But however, the, we don't as, as uh, I guess you could say evangelicals, or post-reformational believers, we don't recognize these as scriptures. And honestly, as I'll show here in a minute, the Catholic Church initially didn't even recognize these texts either. 
So these texts, these apocryphal texts, were written in what's called the intertestamental period. So that's about the 400 years between the last prophet Malachi and the, and the scriptures and the gospels. This intertestamental period is also known as the second temple period, which covers the period of the reconstruction of the temple and Nahum and Habakkuk, all the way to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. That spanned this intertestamental or second temple period is another term that's, that's used. So there are several things that kind of testify together against the inclusion of the apocryphal text in the Old Testament. So in the third century BC, trans the, the Hebrew Bible, as we know it, was translated into Greek. This was called the Septuagint. The Septuagint used the Old Testament books that we recognize as canon, as well as other Hebrew writings from the culture to include these apocryphal texts because it was giving the history of the Jewish people. Christians began to then translate, specifically the Catholic Church started to translate the Septuagint into Latin. So they translated the Old Testament. Old Testament was originally Hebrew. Greek was the common language that was there, the koine, the common language. They translated it into Greek. And then the Catholic Church, when they started translating you know, the New Testament and everything, translated that into Latin. And when they, when they did this, what they, what they called the Vulgate, they included these apocryphal books in, that tra in the translation into the Vulgate, the Latin Vulgate. Despite this, most do not, did not see, even at that time, these apocryphal texts as authoritative. Jerome, who's the main translator of the Bible into Latin, into the Vulgate, said himself that they should not be used as canon. The, this is something akin to this whole scenario of what happened would be akin to if someone took our Bibles that we have, our study Bibles with our notes, our footnotes, our maps, our you know, introductions to the books, and that was translated into another language, no one would consider all those additional things as canon. They're helpful, but they, weren't con they wouldn't be considered as canonical. So the apostolic writers... Uh, although the New Testament writers did occasionally, so the apostolic writers being, you know, those who wrote the New Testament as well as kind of the, the fathers after them. Although the New Testament writers do occasionally cite or allude to texts outside of canon, these apocryphal texts, they never cite any extra canonical texts of scripture. And they never clearly quote any of the books found in the Orthodox or Roman Catholic apocryphal texts. Additionally, the Catholics themselves, as I said earlier, never recognized the Apocrypha until the Council of Trent in the 16th century. So the Council of Trent is often called the Counter-Reformational Council. So Martin Luther and others brought up issues that with the Catholic Church. And then what happened was is they had a council and made some decisions based off of uh, the issues that Martin Luther was bringing and others. So one of the big problems that Martin Luther had that was one of the thrust of him writing his theses and hammering it on the door was uh, the idea of purgatory. And so with purgatory, there was this whole thing of a selling of indulgences, which was, uh, well, if you want to go sin, you know, that could add, you know, that would add to your time in purgatory. Well, if you bought an indulgence, that would limit, you know, that would take time off your sentence in purgatory, right? 
Also, you could go, and if somebody had passed away, you could, you could go and give money to the church, the Catholic church, and then they would, you know, you know absolve some of the time that, the, that your loved one had in purgatory. And Martin Luther had a big problem with this, rightfully so, because it's, one, the, the whole idea of monetizing the faith is wicked, but the fact is that purgatory is, is never taught in the Bible. And Martin Luther pointed that out when, they was, when he was brought before the Diet of Worms, and you know, he's expressing his, in his theses and talking about all this stuff. He says, you, or technically we, because he was still a Catholic monk at the time, said, we don't even recognize these apocryphal texts as canon. So what did the Catholic Church do? They had the Council of Trent. They said, guess what? It is canon now. And so all of our teachings and everything we did is good. So that's, like, go look at that. That happened. Yeah. So it wasn't even, it wasn't even officially recognized by the Catholic Church until the 16th century. But also, too, prior to all that, Jewish writers, ancient Jewish writers, they never cited or quoted any of the, the, the apocryphal text as scripture. Josephus, who is a, um, an ancient 1st, 2nd century AD Jewish historian, says that the Jews did not have equal value of these texts because of a failure to, of, of exact succession back to the prophets. So, you know, you have... You have the prophetic texts of like Isaiah and Zechariah and all these, but in this intertestamental period, there's no connection with these texts back to um, these, the, the prophets. And there was no way to vet or to, to filter these books or confirm their legitimacy like we talked about earlier with you know, the, the confirmation of like in Deuteronomy, what we talked about. So there's no connection to the prophets. See, because prophecy at this time had stopped until John the Baptist, um, as we understand it, is that John the Baptist heralded the Messiah. He was a prophet, and that's when prophetic, the, the prophetic utterances began again to, to usher in and herald in the Messiah. And probably the most important point is that the Bible that Jesus cherished was organized into three parts. And he talks, Jesus himself says this in Luke 24, 44. And he references it as the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, or the law, the prophets, and the writings. And these, this three-part division was the kind of the ancient way that it was, the, the ancient Hebrew Bible was categorized, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, or the law, the prophets, and the writings. And that's how they organize it prior to like our kind of our modern conventions of, uh, you know, how we break it up. So the apocryphal text would not be included in this three-part division or understanding that Jesus mentions. So Jesus himself doesn't count the apocryphal texts as canonical. So we kind of talked about the Old Testament, the apocrypha. So how were the books of the New Testament chosen? So the earliest like recorded listing systematic listing of all 27 books of the New Testament uh, was with Origin of Alexandria in 250 AD. And then it's in the sermon notes that he's writing in his liturgical calendar that he lists all 30, or sorry, 27 of the the New Testament books that we have today in in our Bible. 
Now, this is well before what was called the Council of Nicaea in 325. And what you'll hear today, if you kind of look up like how we got the Bible or you look at pop culture references, there's kind of this, you know, ominous idea that like in 325, the Council of Nicaea is what like codified what we consider the Bible. And it was the church that did it. It was like the bishops and there was all these like competing views of Christ that were out there. And, you know, they wanted to bring the hammer down as a church and to dispel all this other stuff. So they, you know, they said, here you go. This is what it is. But that's not true. Um, and it's categorically false and it's been disproven by scholarship, just like with a lot of things that run around in pop culture like this. Um, like what we talked about, like with the problem of evil and the whole idea of like the logical problem of evil. And, you know, that's a common thing where, you know, how can evil and God exist? It's logically impossible. That's been thoroughly dispelled in academia. And so has the idea that somehow in 325, like the church came and squashed everything. Because, and that's because we, prior to that, and when the books were, were first written, there was, a, there was a common understanding that it was the Word of God. So though the earliest recorded listing of all the books of the Bible was in 250, and that doesn't mean that there was, that's like the earliest ancient text that we have, that doesn't mean that there, were other, there weren't other listings of it. Um, there was, and it's commonly known, there was a core of 20, approximately 19 to 20, of the New Testament books of the 27 that were recognized well before this, going back to the first century AD and the earliest manifestations of the church. See, these core 20 texts were always considered authoritative by the entire church across all of Christianity, across the entire Christendom where you know Christianity had gone around the Mediterranean um, from the time they were written and to the time that they were circulated. So these 20 texts from the, from the very beginning of the church were recognized as true and authoritative. These books were the four Gospels, Acts, the 13 letters of Paul, and 1st and 2nd John. And some will debate the 2nd John. But again, these were considered authoritative from very first being written and circulated between the churches. Because what would... Something that you need to understand too is that what would happen is, and we see this um, man, we see this written that Paul talking about this, but he would write a church to the, he would write a letter to the church in Ephesus, right? They would take that, they would copy it, and they would send copies out to the other churches. And same thing with you know the Book of Romans, all the all the Gospels, all this, they would take that letter that was written to them, and they would they would distribute it, they would copy it and distribute it to the other churches so that the, the teachings were circulating. And these 20 books across all of, all of the churches were understood to be true and authoritative. Now, the main reason why they were considered authoritative generally was because they were, had a tendency to be written a little bit earlier, but also they were written by people who followed Jesus from the beginning. So, Matthew and John were, were, Jesus, were two of Jesus' disciples, his original disciples. They were, wrote the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of John. People also, people who had seen the risen Lord, Paul, rode to Damascus. He had a 
a, an encounter with the risen Lord. And there were these 20 books were also written by people who had close companionship with the apostles and people who had seen the Paul, who had seen the risen Lord. For example, Luke wrote the, the gospel of Luke and he wrote Acts. He was a close companion with Paul and Paul even talks about him in his letters and speaks to his, his honesty and his, his ability to write and those kinds of things. Mark was a close companion to Peter. And a lot of people actually say that Mark's gospel was a lot of recounting of what Peter saw in Jesus's uh, life and ministry. So even if, like, let's say hypothetically, so we have the, these 20 books that from the very beginning that they were written, they were authoritative and they were understood in the church and they were circulated in the church. Even if it was just these, let's say hypothetically, it was just these 20 books, right? And the other seven were, ne were never seen as canon. None of what we believe in Jesus would have fallen apart. None of the absolute essentials of the Christian faith would be in jeopardy. Think about it. We have the Gospels. We have the recounting of Jesus' life and who he was and his character and nature and his claims to divinity. We have the book of Romans, which is a systematic laying out of us as sinners and how we need to be reconciled to God and how we can be brought back to him through Jesus and his blood. So none of these, even if it was just these 20, none of the, the essential facts of the Christian faith would be called into question. Also, too, I forgot to mention this, but when we take a step back and we think about the apostles as well, not only were are the, the, those writers like John and, and Matthew and Paul, they were also confirmed not only by seeing Jesus, but by their miracles. Jesus performed miracles to uh, confirm who he was. Also, too, in the early church, in this apostolic era, they were performing miracles to confirm that they had this authority as well. So some people will point, well, okay, well, there was a delay in those seven books, even though it wouldn't, you know, have any effect on the Christian faith, the Christian understanding of who God is, our path to redemption. None of the tenets of the faith would be compromised. They would all be there, right? So, but some people still be naysayers and so, well, the seven, you know, those seven books, why did it take so long? Well, the thing is, is they're looking at it the wrong way. Now, the, the delay of kind of confirming these seven other books is not negative. Rather, it shows the carefulness of the early church in discerning which books were God-breathed. It shows that they were deliberate in discovering and receiving the canon that God had created. They knew that scripture was breathed out by God and they wanted to ensure that they got it right. They didn't want to just have anything because anything flippantly just accepted as, well, this is the word of God. So it shows the consistency and it shows the care that was taken in recognition of the canonical books of the, of the New Testament. See, there was a definite standard for what constituted authoritative Christian testimony. And it was in place when the New Testament was written. It wasn't something that happened 320, you know, 300 years later at the Council of Nicaea or something of that nature. From the very beginning of the church, there was an authoritative standard. The testimony of eyewitnesses of the risen Lord Jesus 
and their close associates, as I said, were authoritative from the earliest stages of Christian history. And every text in the New Testament can be traced back in some way to an eyewitness of the risen Lord Jesus, or again, as I said, a close associate of. So this leads us to our next question. How can Christians be confident that the texts that we do have have been reliably preserved? So, again, just a quick note on circulation, right? So they would, they would get it, they would send, they would make copies, a bunch of copies, and send them out across, across to the other churches. And so the, new, the, the common language at that time, the New Testament was written in called, what was called koine, or just means common, common Greek, which is interesting that even in Rome, Greek was actually the, the main language spoken. It was, Latin was like the high language of the, the, the upper class. Common Greek was what most people spoke at the time. So it's kind of interesting. So in manuscripts, ancient manuscripts that are written in Greek, we have 5,600 ancient manuscripts of the New Testament that have survived in whole or in fragment. There are approximately, on top of that, there's approximately 20,000 ancient manuscripts in other languages, such as Latin, Syriac, Coptic, and Arabic. Okay. Here's a few examples of these, some of these most ancient Greek copies and manuscripts that we have. There's a fragment called P52. It's a scrap of John 18, and it was copied in the first or second century AD, so approximately 125 AD. P104. This fragment is from the second century of, and it's of Matthew 21. It was copied less than, most likely less than 100 years after Matthew had originally written this. So today we have a copy of Matthew 21 that is within 100 years of Matthew originally writing that. Okay. There's Papyrus 66 and, and P45 that contain John's Gospels copied around 200 AD. So there are no other ancient writings in existence that have so many surviving ancient copies that are so not only so many, but so close in age to the original writings. So the 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 kind of follow the the runner the first runner up to closest to the Bible, and it's you know over 20, 25,000 ancient copies. The closest is Homer's Iliad and Odyssey, which is kind of the ancient Greek Bible. There's only about eighteen hundred ancient copies. Of, of these two texts, and the earliest being over 400 years from the original writings. But we have New Testament writings that survive to this day that were within 100 years of the originals. After that, behind that, we have the writings of Plato. There's only a couple hundred of these ancient writings, copies that survive today, and the, the closest in proximity to the original writing of those of Plato is it's over a thousand years. So the most ancient we have is still a thousand years removed from the writings of Plato. 
But however, no one seems to doubt the historical accuracy of these works and nobody brings into doubt, you know, the Iliad and the Odyssey or, you know, the writings of Plato, but they, they do, even though the, the evidence is kind of insurmountable with the amount of textual evidence that we have. But even prior to the modern era, we know that the original documents lasted for hundreds of years after their original writings. So we don't, we don't have the originals. We have copies of the originals that we can know are true because we have, there's this thing called textual criticism, if you want to look into this. But we have all these, the smattering of copies from all around the Mediterranean. And we can compare them to each other and know and re actually recreate the originals based off of all the copies and all the fragments. But even we can go back and look at writings after about two, three hundred years after Jesus, and we can see that there's, there were, these original writings were, were still around at that time. There was a church father named Tertullian, and he speaks of authentic writings of the apostles that shows the original letters of Paul survived into the, to the early 3rd century A.D., so into, you know, 250 A.D. Because the churches who received them kept these letters, and they, as they would write, they would copy these out, send them around. And these original writings of the apostolic, of the apostles survived for hundreds of years, and all the while, they were being copied in distributed extensively. So it wasn't like they're written and they were lost or something. They cherished these things, they preserved them, and they copied them and sent them out. This shows that early Christians valued accurate keeping of, the, of books because they understood them to be the very word of God. Now, concerning the accuracy of the ancient writings that we have, of the ancient copies we have today, scholars would say that the consistency between these early copies is over 93%. And any inconsistencies between these do not affect how the text is translated and do not affect any doctrine. Okay, so what they're, what they're saying is, is we can look at all these ancient copies and there are, you'll, and you'll hear people who are, you know, skeptical of the Bible be like, well, there's, there's all these copying errors, right? So, okay, even if you say there's copying errors, 93% of it all matched together, okay? And then the other question is, well, what exactly are these copying errors? Okay, because the thing is, is that these inconsistencies that they say are really just copying errors, common things like transposition of words or uh, misspelling of words. And when you have all these texts, so... If we're sitting there, we have all these texts, we can sit there. If there's one text that has a word that's spelled differently, we can know by looking at all the others that, well, in this, in this manuscript, that word was actually misspelled, okay, because we have the vast amount of all these, okay? So that, that misspelling thing is easily, easily taken care of by the, the amount of copies that we have. Also, there are some instances in transposing of words or flipping the order of words. You know, you have a scribe who's sitting there looking at a papyrus 
and he's sitting there copying and sometimes order, you know, word order might be transposed. Now we as English speakers, this might seem like a big deal, but it's really inconsequential when we look at Greek, which is what the New Testament was written in. And the reason for this is that Greek is what we call inflected. So basically every word, if you've ever taken a Greek class, every word in the sentence gets conjugated or it gets like a special ending on it to tell us what its function is in the, is in the sentence. Okay. So like, for example, in English, if I say, man bites dog, and I switch it to, and it gets flopped to dog bites man, that completely changes the whole meaning of the sentence, right? You, ha you have the dog bite, you know, it, it, it completely changes the meaning. However, in Greek, switching of words would not change the meaning. There are certain instances where there's types of usage where they would use word order, but by and large, everything, since everything gets its own ending, since it's inflected, it really doesn't matter. So back to our original, you know, man, or dog bites man, the dog would get a unique conjugation on the end of it in what we call the nominative case as being the actor. He would get a special, the word for dog would get a special ending on it. The the man who is the receiving of the action or who would be in what's called the accusative case, he's the direct object, taking him back to you know, elementary English here. I, gotta do, I teach my kids this stuff, so it's, it's fun, right? So, you know, so the direct object, the dog, or sorry, the, the, the one doing the action, the dog, gets a unique ending on it. The man who's the receiving of the action gets a unique ending on it. And then the verb itself would get its own unique ending on it, conjugated to tell us, you know, what, you know, what tense was a past, present, future? Was it active voice or passive voice? You know, was it in the first, second, third person? All that's contained in the Greek verb when it's conjugated. So they, they literally conjugate every single word in the language, even to the point of conjugating the word the. And the word the, the way that's conjugated is going to match to the word that the the belongs to. It's going to be in the same case, same voice, everything that it's supposed to be. So if you, sw if you switch the words, you can still understand what the, it doesn't change the meaning of the sentence like it does in English because we don't inflect things in English. We don't give an ending to the word man, you know, because he's, it's in the nominative case. We just say man. So word order is very dependent in English, but in Greek, it's not. It's not a, it's not a huge deal. So, so this, as I said, the transposition of the word order in Greek doesn't really mean anything. It doesn't change anything. So that's the vast majority. When people say, well, you know, these, these inconsistencies between the manuscripts, about five to 6% of that is these copying errors that don't change the meaning or we, it, like we, like there's a doctrine over here and a doctrine over here that like they're completely counter to each other because no, it's, they're simple copying errors. And when you see there's people that like to be like, oh, there's X number of, you know, inconsistencies or they like to put a big number on it. It's, it's really simple things that we wouldn't even, you know, in our, we would never look back at any other ancient writing and be like, well, I can't believe the writings of Homer because there's those, there's those errors there. 
people just like to use that as a way to try to undermine the authority of Scripture. So admittedly, though, there is a very tiny fraction of these inconsistencies that aren't a result of copying errors, okay? And it, so it can't be resolved through that, that, that understanding. And this is, a pro, you know, they would say approximately 1% of the inconsistencies. However, this tiny number of instances in which the initial reading of the text remains, I guess you could say, kind of uncertain, not one copying variant affects anything that we believe or understand about God or his work. There's a famous New Testament scholar, Craig Blomberg, and he says that approximately 98 to 99% of the New Testament can be re reconstructed beyond any measure of reasonable doubt. For the approximate 1%, it doesn't affect any doctrine of what we believe about God or God's work in the world. An example of this, something that would fall in this kind of like 1%, is John 1.18. There's a, there's a variant here. So some manuscripts will say, will say one and only God, and some will say one and only Son. So, but we know that Jesus is the one and only true God, but we, and we also know he's God's only begotten Son. So both these variations are possible and fit within God's word and our understanding of who God is. This doesn't change, this, this minor fraction doesn't change anything that we know about God, the New Testament, his action in the world. It doesn't affect or shake any of our central, central doctrines. It's very, yes, ma'am. Yeah, yeah, and so like for example, like Jehovah Witnesses, right? So they have their translation is the New World Translation. If there's not a tra if it's a translation and there's not like a committee of people that do the translation, it's it's a bunk translation. But they they constantly come out with new versions of this of the New World Translation and any what you would call Christological passages that like speak to Jesus's divinity, they change. Like a big one, like if you go to, if a Jehovah Witness comes to your door and you say, well, what does John 1, 1 say? And in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. They, they change it to, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was a God. Um, so they, they do that, they'll go, yeah, the, the, the new world trends, and that's the thing is, is like, if a Jehovah Witness comes to your door and you're sitting there going, they're, like you're talking past each other because they have a completely different translation. And they intentionally go in there, they're the watchtowers, it's the, called the Watchtower Society, they put out the New World Translation, and they'll intentionally, any of those Christological passages, they, they take them out. But the, and then they'll sit there and go, where does Jesus say that he's God? But the thing, and this is one of the things we're actually going to talk about, is that Jesus calls himself God, but not in ways that we as moderns think of, because we think about it, because there's all these concepts and ideas that were in the Jewish mind at the time, and their understanding of who God was, and like Yahweh, and the great I am, that Jesus directly speaks to all these things. Um, but yes, they, there is, like, and the, the Mormons do stuff like that too. 
they insert different things into, but there's no, there's no textual foundation for that. It's, it's merely them. I mean, it's in my mind, it's satanic, but it's, they're sitting there trying to change this to, to take God from a, a, the, you know, being God, being part of the Trinity to the first created being. And what's interesting is, is that that actually goes back to, uh, um, Pastor Brenton talked about a while ago, there is a, they, we call it the Arian heresy, which is actually why the Council of Nicaea that I mentioned earlier, because people would be like, the Council of Nicaea, they did that to like come down and like crush all these competing views of, of you know, and all these other texts. Well, actually it was, it, it was to call out this um, heretic named Arius who was saying that Jesus was a created being, the first created being. And really that's what, that's what Jehovah's Witnesses is. It's a, it's a modern manifestation of uh, um, Arianism. So, but yeah, you'll, and so it's, it's important to know that. And so it's important to know, you know, when you're having conversations with people, uh, what version of the Bible are you looking at? Oh, is that New World Translation? And then, you know, have that discussion with them about how that's not a legitimate translation. You know, the Watchtower Society puts it out. It's not. So, but uh, yes, good point. Thank you. Um, so, but we can see that the Bible is inerrant. Um, it's inspired and it's sufficient in its preservation. We have more manuscript evidence for the New Testament than any other work from antiquity. We can rest on the fact that the words delivered to us by the apostles in their original writings has been preserved to this day. So we can take solace and trust in the word. Um, and if anybody, like, there's, you can go down rabbit holes and like reading about this stuff. This is kind of a general overview. Um, this is a book. Um, it's called How We Got the Bible. It's, it's, pretty, it's pretty good. It's not like overly scholar, scholarly, I guess you could say. Um, but it, gives, it gives, uh, gives good insight and understanding how to, how to approach this, uh, this topic. So if nobody has any other questions, we'll go ahead and close out in prayer. Okay. Did you have questions? Yeah. Yeah, so the question was, um, there's some, there was some passage of like in the NIV that's there that's not in other translations. There are a couple sections that were, that's, so the, I'm trying to remember off the top of my head. The, well, it wasn't the woman at the well, it was the woman caught in sin that, were, that, were, that they were going to stone. And so that is, in, and the reason why is because there are some manuscripts that have it and some that don't. Generally, the older manuscripts don't have it. And so you'll see, oftentimes you'll see it, you'll see it footnoted and you'll say like, oh, you know, early, uh, you know, earlier man manuscripts don't have this. Um, but, but he, like, that's an, that's an example. Like, right. Like does, if, if that is there, or if that's not, does that affect 
anything of what we believe of Jesus and who he was and what he did? No. You know, he's, we still know through the rest of the, the Gospels that he came to save sinners and that he did. And we know of his work and who he was. And that, that instance there, that doesn't change anything. There's another, there's another one. It's like a, I can't remember. It's one, it's one of Paul's writings. Um, and in, you'll, the earliest manuscripts don't have it. It's like a, it gives like a the kind of what you would call the, the Trinitarian um, formula, the God, the, you know, God, God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, right? And there's, there's a, another part that's a common one that people will try to go to, to to point to the Trinity, but some of the earlier ones don't have that, just as like the Father, but some of the later ones, they, it was Father, Son, Spirit. And so some people are like, well, that's, you know, trying to manufacture the, the Trinity, but that's, that's not the case. So, so you know, sometimes they might, the, some of the copiers might have done things like that to clarify things, but that doesn't, that doesn't, I mean, Jesus, when he, when he gave the Great Commission, he said, go therefore and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That Trinitarian language was already there and it's undisputed, you know, and there's, there's, other, there's other ways that people go in and, or that we understand the Trinity, you know, like the Holy Spirit in Acts when um, uh, Ananias and Sapphira are sitting there and they come before and uh, Peter, I think it's Peter, says to him, you haven't lied to man, but you've lied to God. And he's talking about, he just got done talking about the Holy Spirit. So Peter there is saying that the Holy Spirit's God. And then Jesus, he gives, you know, his claims to the to divinity as well. And so there's a, there's a couple of those spots, but the, the, the great thing about that and with, with our scriptures is that we can know where those spots are at. Like, for example, like the Quran, they don't know that. Because what happened was, is you had all these writings of Muhammad, and he set up his caliphate, his empire, he passed away, somebody else took over, and I can't remember if it was like the, the, the second or third one after him, his name was Uthman, he was like the emperor, there was a, dis, there was a dispute among his troops, because all these, these writings of Muhammad were contradicting each other, right? In like, not just like little ways, but like very big ways ways that affected the doctrine of their, their faith. And so what Uthman did is he collected them all across from the caliphate, compiled what he said was the Quran, and burned the rest of them and said, here's your Quran. And so, you know, so you hear Muslims be like, oh, the Quran's infallible. It's like, well, because Uthman destroyed everything. So, but the thing is, is that we, we know because our faith is a true faith and we have evidence for our faith. We have evidence for the truths of our faith and for our scriptures. And we don't have to like hide and say like, oh, you know, it's like, yeah, there's some variations there, but they don't affect anything. You know, they don't affect the tenets of the faith. Um, and the vast majority of them, like I said, are copying errors anyway, where they, they don't really matter at all. So, so yes, there is a couple of those, that's like, like I said, like the one, that 1%, that 1% variation, that would be like an example of that. But again, it doesn't, it doesn't affect anything. It doesn't affect who we understand God or Jesus to be or anything of that nature. So, yes. Jesus spoke of biblical prophets, but how did he distinguish somebody who took the letter J and 
Okay. Um, so the question was, is uh, we talked and we talked about the Old Testament, we talked about uh, prophets, um, and the question was, is well, how do we talk with someone who puts a lot of weight into like modern prophesying? Um, so one of the things is, is when we we have a tendency when we hear the word prophecy or hear the word prophet, our mind goes to like Nostradam or Notre Dame or what, however you pronounce the name, Nostradamus. Our mind goes to him and these like, this like, what you would call like apocalyptic style of literature, like, like what we see in the book of Revelation, right? Which actually revelation just means an uncovering or a revealing anyway. So, and it comes with the Greek word apocalypsis, but which just means uncovering. But we, we take words like that and we, we read into them kind of our modern meaning, right? So we have this idea of a prophet is like this, you know, person who tells the future. And that was a piece of what they did. But really what a prophet does, and when you go and read the prophets, the significant portion of what the prophets did was calling, calling the, the apostate state of Israel back to a covenant relationship with God. And so that was like the, the future telling piece of it was minor. And then also too, that future telling piece was tied to uh, what's called like the blessings and the curses in Deuteronomy. God says, you know, if you do what I say and you keep my, my commands, it'll go well for you in the land. And if you don't, all this bad stuff's going to happen. And so what the prophets are doing, they're calling people back into the nation of Israel, back into a covenant relationship with him, with God. And also too, their, their future, their, their, that future stuff is like, well, God promised it back here that you're going to, if we don't, He's going to destroy us. We will not go on the land. He will scatter us. And so it was never, a lot of the, 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 that prophecy wasn't like just them pulling something out of nowhere and just coming up with stuff. And so with that, that understanding of what a prophet was and the vast majority of what a prophet did was calling people back into a covenant relationship with God, if we carry that forward when we go into, like when Paul talks about gifts and gifts of prophecy, that kind of changes how we understand it because it's not like Paul saying like, oh, there's going to be people who like tell the future all the time. Paul saying there's going to be people who are going to go like, hey guys, we're not in right relationship with God. We need to come back to the right relationship with God. And so that's, that's one piece of it. But also too, I've, there's a tendency a lot of times with, um, with people who put a lot of weight on the prophecy stuff and signs and miracles and stuff, uh, that's like their, they want it as con, like as someone else confirmation. Um, but Jesus says repeatedly, and I want to say it's in Matthew, they're saying, do miracles, do miracles. And he's sitting there going, well, the only sign you will have is the sign of Jonah. And he's talking about being in the ground for three days, as Jonah was in the belly of the whale for, or the large fish for three days and came out. And so what he's saying is, is like, all the confirmation you need is my resurrection. So, um, and he call, you know, and he calls him a wicked and adulterous generation and stuff like that. And it's, it's not to say that God doesn't give visions or, you know, do any of that kind of stuff. It's that the weight that's put on it is incorrectly placed because we have everything necessary for life, faith, and godliness, and to follow God in the person and resurrection of Jesus Christ.
So that's, that's how I would speak to them on that and be like, I think you're putting too much weight into it. And I think you have kind of a misunderstanding really of what a prophet was. So. Mm-hmm. We see that over and over again in, in, in what we call the prophets. Uh, they will say what God says. And so that confirms it right there. Yeah. And, and that's, the, that's the question you have to ask them. Are they saying what God said or are they just speaking yeah. what they think God said? Yeah. And show me in the scripture yeah. where God said yeah. that. And so the comment was is that, you know, all the prophets, when they said that it would be a thus saith the Lord, you know, and and so going to them and say, well, where does God say that in Scripture? And also I'd, I'd point out the uh, that what I read earlier, you probably want to be, if you look at Deuteronomy, because a false prophet, the consequence was death. I'm not, I mean, you know, I'm just saying that shows a, there's the weight and gravity of sitting there saying that you know what yeah you oh i had a prophecy and god told me this thing like you don't flippantly go around saying that you know that you know and again i'm not saying like stone somebody that like says you know their prophecy didn't come true or something but it it, i think it shows the weight and the gravity of that that you just don't go around and be like because i know there there's in there's a different church traditions and denominations that have a tendency to rely more on that and be like, I got a prophecy, I got a prophecy. It's like, you know, well, have your other prophecies been right? Uh, because Deuteronomy would say that you're, you're not a prophet, one, but two, your false prophecy, that's a really serious thing to sit there and say you're speaking for the Lord when you're not. So, but any other questions, comments? Okay, let's pray real quick. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you today, Lord, um, and uh, we just we just thank you for this meeting of believers, Lord. Uh, it's it's just so edifying to be able to sit here and to learn about you and how you work in the world and how we can have faith in you and in your word. Because it's it's such an amazing thing when we sit here and then we observe all these things and we look at the truths of our faith and how it just boisters us up and, and, and strengthens, up, Lord, strengthens us, Lord. And we thank you for that, that we can take confidence in that, that we can love you with our mind and love you with our hearts and have just bedrock understanding that you're, you're true and this, the Christian faith is true. So please, Lord, just bless us going forward and please just uh, bless everyone here as they head home. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.